0: When you think of community, uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan armor Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative.
1: breakfast. Oh, Alternative yeah. news, yeah. analysis yeah. and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8:30 am i double. Grab
2: your
3: Okay, and welcome to Thursday Breakfast. Um, so, firstly, 3 I would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Bururung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay respects to Elders past and present and emerging, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We acknowledge sovereignty was never ceded, ceded, and a treaty was never signed. Okay, good morning, Grace, and good morning, Ayan. So, we have a special show on today. We do, we do, and... It's uh, so today's um,
4: as part of International Women's Day, Thursday Breakfast is
1: hosting
3: a special um, show full of amazing guests. Yeah, who we have in the studio right now. Um, so uh, we have Shakira Hussain, who's a academic and writer. Um, and uh, she specializes in gender, multiculturalism and Islam, Muslim women, gendered violence and racialized political discourse. So good morning, Shakira.
0: Good morning, Sherzett.
3: Um Next we have Adele Mordolo, who is a committed advocate and researcher for immigrant and refugee women's rights. Um, she's also the executive director of the Migrant Women's uh, uh, Health Center. Uh, <laughs> next uh, we have... Uh, good morning, Adele. Sorry. Good morning. Um, so next we have...
4: Um, up next we have um, a friend uh, and uh, we have Hala uh, <laughs> <Hela> Ibrahim. <laughs> I, I thought I mean. I'd shout that out. Um, Hala Ibrahim is an Egyptian-Australian Muslim editor with a passion for activism through writing and publishing. She works as an editor for an education public... public apologies. Publishing house on weekends weekdays and hangs behind the desk at a public library on weekends. She is also the founder and editorial director of DEDGED Press. Jed. Uh, Deged, Jed. So the D is silent?
5: Uh, kind of. Okay.
4: Yeah. Uh, Jed Press, uh, a publishing project that provides
3: a paid platform for creators of colour. Welcome to Thursday Breakfast, Hello. Thanks, Ayan. Uh, and then we have a, a, another friend, um, Iris Lee, um, who is a writer, activist and hospitality worker in Nam. And she also presents uh, 3CR's Queer and in the Air. Good morning.
1: Good
2: morning.
3: All right. So um, we have a pretty packed show um, and we have six, uh, well at the minute, four guests. Um, but later on we'll have um, uh, Jane Green um, from Vixen Collective. Um, and Jane is currently working on sex worker rights in Australia. And also we'll have Arika Walu, uh, who is part of the Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance. So that, uh, we're really excited for that as well. Um, so I suppose one of the main themes... So one of the main themes that was set out by um, the International Women's Day or organisation, international organisation, was uh, press for progress. Uh, but Celeste Little um, on Twitter has been quite um, okay, vocal about um, this sort of hashtag, we could say, or hashtag campaign. Um, and she, she said, quote, IWD, so International Women's Day, started as working women's movements by socialist textile workers and Russian revolutionaries, promoted by women activists, appropriated by the UN, and now stolen by corporates. Enough, all right. So I suppose that's how we're going to start... Um, today. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I suppose we, we, we're going to open this question up to everyone. So, people talk about feminism in, in waves, so usually starting at the suffragettes and ending in this sort of post feminist era. You know, and obviously, this is a really problematic way of, of viewing uh, feminism in general. But I suppose um, if we could open it up to, to you, Shakira, um, could you give us a brief rundown on what people mean when they talk about history in this way?
6: goodness.
0: I'm thinking to figures that now get referred to as proto-feminists, as in women who were making statements, or not making statements, writing and behaving in ways that in retrospect we might call feminists because they were transgressive of the gender roles at the time. And, but one thing about a lot of these proto-feminists is that their, their ability to transgress their, or their gender roles was very much dependent on their race and their class. Mm-hmm. And, so, um, and although there were lower-class women who were presumably making similar transgressions, but they are much less visible to us in retrospect... Um, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah.
7: okay. Did you have anything to add to that Adele? Yeah, I was um, really interested in the, the thing you said about um, feminist activists or about um, women workers who really um, started the movement for International Women's Day. And the thing that strikes me about those women is that they were um, migrant women in the main... Um, and they were working in the factories of New York um, and other factories, of course, around the world, and they struck, and they struck for many days and, um, you know, obviously sacrificed everything that workers do when they strike. Um, And I guess one of the really important things for us to remember is that their activism, their strike activism, um, resulted in better conditions for other workers um, down the track. So they were active as um, workers and as women on their own behalf, and that has had implications for other workers um, down now. Um, So I think that's something that if we um, can focus on the origins of International Women's Day, they really are about women taking... um, Matters into their own hands, which you know we all like to do, um, to create change not only on your own behalf but on behalf of other other women, and you know in the end making a society a better place for for everyone to live in. Um, So I guess when we're looking at comparing that kind of focus in International Women's Day with that more corporatized um, focus, which really is about you know more women in the boardroom or um, promoting a brand, um, yeah, I think that where we benefit as women much more when we focus on the activism side of things because, uh, you know, it's fine, you know, corporates can get in on the act, um, but they're really not creating change.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and what about uh, f- feminism? So when we talk about f- feminism as, as, a, as, a, as a concept, and it's, you know, it's usually based on um, sort of, you know, this, this sort of Western view of of it, but we'll, we'll, t- we'll talk about that later because we have another panel uh, mm. on decol, decolonization yeah. of, of uh, feminism. But if, if we talk about, like, so sort of the, the movement starting with, like, s- suffragettes and that sort of thing, you know, wh- wh- what about feminism outside this context? Would anyone like to add to that?
5: Um, you know, I feel like I can't really speak a lot to the history of feminism and to... I mean to a certain to a certain level, I can you know I know some things about first wave, second wave, but mm-hmm. these things aren't really taught in school i guess um, and it's really i've found it i found that without actively constantly searching and looking thing, looking these things up it's like i don't i don't know a lot about proto feminists like the I mean, the only thing I can... Uh, no, actually, yeah. this doesn't even count because it's First Wave Feminism, but, um, you know, people like Susan B. Anthony and Ida, Ida B. Wells. Um, and you don't even learn about Ida B. Wells that much either. Mm. And she was fantastic. Um, but I guess that'll be discussed later when we talk about um, erasure. Um, so, yeah, I i don't know. I don't know a lot yeah. about this to a, to a
4: certain point. Mm. Um, can I make yeah. a quick addition... Um, feminist discourse um, is very academic mm. and the language used to discuss ideas about power and inequality require um, the reader to have a certain level mm. of education. Um, this just goes out to everybody. Why do you think it's important to make language, A, accessible and also you know, make sure that the people who need the discourse the most are able to
3: receive it? Shakira, do you want to Sh- come into
0: that? Because you're an academic. <laughs> yes, I'm. <laughs> yes, I'm an academic. Why <laughs> oh, is it so
5: complicated,
4: Shakira? <laughs> yes. and, uh,
0: yeah, and I am familiar with the difficulty in mm. um, translating from academic language and out of it. Um, I write a lot of non academic articles. I will just add it can be hard to get yourself taken seriously by your academic colleagues if mm. you do more than a critical amount of work, not in that sort of language and that kind of um, approachable. But, yeah, I think it is important for academic feminists to bear that issue of accessibility very much in mind. Mm. But of cou- most academic feminists, well didn 't come into the world speaking fluent academic terminology mm. it 's something that you acquire over time mm. and um, and and most academic well maybe not most a lot of academic feminists go into academia in order to as, as their particular form of activism i know that 's certainly the case for me and um yeah. Um, but um, I, ought, I used to think of women who were on the NGO front, and maybe Adele could speak to this as, being, as doing the real grunt work and being on the cold face and being more in touch than academics. But mm. actually, I'm not sure that that's necessarily the case. You can be just as out of touch with uh, working for an NGO as you can working in a university Department, because if you're working for an NGO, you have to spend a lot of time writing grant applications and others kinds of not dealing with the clients so much. You know, it's, there's all types of ways of getting out of touch with the base. And academia, mm. you know, the ivory tower stereotype is only one of them. As an academic, you can be spending more time in the field than you might be doing if you're working for an NGO and having to spend 95% of your time on grant applications, and that is not how anybody wants to be spending their working day, I don't think. Mm. I think all of us would rather be out there um, with doing more hands-on type of labour when it comes to feminism and activism. But Adele can maybe speak to that.
7: Yeah, I I really like what you've said, Shakira, and I think that um, thinking about that ivory tower stereotype, um, it can be used actually against Feminists of colour Mm. and um, women who have essentially been locked out of academia, um, because we know it's a very elitist space. Um, There was some research done a few years ago about um, top leadership positions, and they looked at you know ASX listed companies, and they looked at um, Parliament and the the Senate, um, and they looked at academia, and within um, the Leaders of universities, there was not a single uh, woman from a migrant background or Aboriginal woman um, in the whole, you know, um, leadership of any university in Australia. Um, so we know it's a it's an extremely elitist space. Mm. And I think that when you are from, um, you know, not from that elite elitist background, not you know, you're not Anglo middle class um, and male. Um, and you are working in academia. When you are accused of being an ivory tower, ivory tower active, um, academic, it can really, um, all, all it really does is it serves to silence you. And of course, you know we're all very self-reflective and, and doing self-reflective <coughs> practice, and we're in that space in order to, again, create change. That's what we're all about. Um, and I'm sure you know Shakira is in that space to create change. Um, and and so i think that we need to be really conscious and and as you said you know ngos can also people working in ngos can also lose touch so called with um what's happening on the ground so i think that we that how we can really avoid um that that losing touch with what's happening is to make sure we stay really networked with each mm. other, that academics are linked to, NGOs are linked to what's happening um, in workplaces and what's happening in communities so that we can have a <coughs> conversation with each other about um, the, the issues that are, are really affecting us and keeping our eyes on those who are most affected by the politics that we're doing and making sure that they're at the centre of everything we do.
5: Um, oh. Yeah, Sorry, I just wanted to add something on that. Um, so I'm not an academic, um, or I don't class myself as an academic, and um, but I am university educated. Mm-hmm. And so when we're talking about um, academic language, <laughs> sorry, got a bit of a cough, um, <laughs> but when we're talking about academic language, so it does take me, like if I'm going to be reading an academic text, it takes me a while to kind of get into it, get into it, understand it. Yeah. But then I find the problem mostly comes when I'm trying to explain like a feminist concept or any concept to somebody who might not be university educated or might not be an academic, and I find that um, I can't translate this academic language into language I can understand. So if I'm talking to my mother, for example, um, whose first language is in English, and I don't have enough words in Arabic to be able to to explain it, you find this disconnect. And I, f- I think that's one of the really important reasons, because my mother's not... Um, you know, she's not uh, somebody who's against the concept. She is very feminist um, without being a feminist, quote-unquote. Um, it's just it comes out more in her actions and, you know, doesn't have the concepts. And even, even if we're not talking about, um, a, you know, a migrant whose first language is in English, even if I'm talking about... You know school friends who um, didn 't go to university and didn't engage with these concepts on this level I think putting i think having this academic language around it as a form of status like mm. um, you're one of, you know you're a good feminist because you know the right words really alienates like really alienates people from it um even if they are even if they are feminists without being quote unquote feminists um, if that makes any sense um, so that that to me is And and you see it a lot on social media where, you know, somebody might say something and, you know, didn't say the exact right word. And, you know, people, I don't know what happens on social media, but people forget that it's a learning process and people are coming at this, you know, at these issues from different contexts and different backgrounds. And it's just, it's a sudden like, well, you're, you know, we've uh, excommunicated you from the Church of Social Activism because, (laughs) you know, because you've, you've said the wrong thing and it's... And it's just because, well, this is the context that I come in from. So I think, I think for me that's one of the main problems with keeping feminism at an academic level.
0: Actually, I was thinking about social media too and the way that language, as you say, it gets used to undermine people or to um, disavow them. But it's generally not academics who are participating in those conversations and sometimes it's academic concepts being used outside that mm-hmm. and now I'm having to be careful because I'm not saying that non academics shouldn't be using academic language but you could think well but we should be able to have an understanding of what inter- we're inter- saying yeah, yeah yeah and like and this well like intersectionality is a big one this yeah. that's, that's my the, pa- that's the latest stuff uh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. That everyone should uh is using yeah and um and which has a particular and specific context so there's not so much that one I don't think does get used to shut people down so much, but it has been used in ways which take well it's been used as a synonym for diversity, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. not what it actually started out as being it's become less useful for having been used more widely mm-hmm. and um it's yeah. Take back intersectionality, people.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, so Iris, when we talk about language and that sort of stuff, you know, um, how, how, and why is it so important to control your own narrative? Do you think? Mm,
2: um, Yeah, I think like language is really important in many ways because um, I think, um, particularly for like thinking of thinking of sort of trans feminism, we have like this history of medical gatekeepers and. Medical professionals, who like control our lives and you control our use of language, so I guess like coming up with your own language is a push back against um, describing, that and describing things in those ways. And even like, like yeah, how things like non-trans people there wasn't like a term for that at some point, but that had to be like made and all that sort of stuff. Um, so yes, yeah, so language can be an important way of trying to come up with concepts that that don't appear in a dominant way of viewing gender or race, ability, class, mm. sexuality.
4: Mm. Even being able to define yourself for yourself. Um, I, th- I think Janet Mock, the title of her book, redefining Defining Realness, mm. and the importance of that. Um, what do you guys um, think about defining yourself for you? Because a lot of the times we have no control over
3: our story. All and, and all the labels that are that are put on onto yeah. us. Yeah,
5: our bodies are politicized oh. against our will a lot of the time. Um, so, I mean, I, I'm for it. I'm for defining yourself for yourself. Like I, um, I actually like labels to a degree. You know, obviously I don't like I'm not sitting here like yeah box everybody in. But I like having words that at least to some degree, accurately describe me. Like, the first time I heard the term people of colour, I rejoiced, kind of thing. It was like, finally, Mm. something that I feel really works for me as a political term, as a, you know, description of, uh, I don't know, as something that explains why I look the way I do. I I don't don't know how to explain it, but it's just...
3: I find, find, so I've been having a bit of uh, funniness about that term, people of colour, Mm -hmm. um, purely because, so before, well, I lived in Canberra, and all my friends were from culturally and linguistically, you know, whatever mm. people of color. Fine, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> yeah. Um, um, and then all of a sudden, when I moved to Melbourne, I was all like, I, and we never talked about this sort of this sort of stuff. It wasn't in our vocabulary. We weren't talking about this. Um, but when I moved to Melbourne, all of a sudden, I was a I was a person of color, and, and that's how people treated me. And I really find that problematic because also it's. A way for people to say, "Oh, you're 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 non-white." That's mm. what we mean. Oh, you're not white. You, we're just you're not white. You're, you can go in that basket of non-white. Yes. And It's all the same when it, when it's very diverse. Everyone's experiences who are different people. Well, yeah, yeah,
5: I don't I don't disagree with that at all. Um, it's funny. One of my, I can't remember which of my friends said this to me, but it's like um, uh, she was saying she moved to Melbourne and she's like the the racism in Victoria is politer. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I think... And I, I don't know what the racism in
3: is like,
0: but... Um, <laughs> Very polite. <laughs> <laughs> extremely polite. Well,
3: what do you talk about there's no racism in Canberra. Of course.
0: Um, <laughs> sure as I I both lived in Canberra for a long time. Hmm.
3: But, um, but if you...
5: Uh, so one of Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's books... Um, I can't remember which one, but the main characters, you know, come over to America from Africa, and suddenly is confronted with this term African American, or you know, um, where where she from her country of origin just it just wasn't like you just were, mm-hmm. and it didn't you didn't have this label. Um, so I can I can see what you mean about being treated as a person of color, and it is being a way of people pointing out that you're not white. Um, I personally, like, this is just me, but I don't like the term non-white for myself just because I feel like it places me in, I don't know, in opposition to whiteness as a default. Mm. Um, So that's why I personally don't use it. Um, But the fact of the matter is, it comes down to the whole, you know, oh, I don't see race. You need to see race. Like, you need to. Um, Mm -hmm. Like, I understand that it's not great being pointed out that you are other, but you need to recognize that I am other and I'm treated differently to you. Um, because if you come at it from a perspective like, we're all equal, we're all the same, then you cannot see that there, is, there are systemic and institutional um, issues happening here. So, But again, that's just my opinion. So <laughs>
0: does anybody else have anything to say um, about that? I think a lot of people who the, might ourselves use the term people of colour or pox or women of colour or whatever as nonetheless have an ambivalent relationship to it, because it homogenizes such a diverse mm. range of experiences, mm. I think it's more I that do agree like we yeah. can't we
5: can't just stop a person of color, mm-hmm. like we obviously have to go deeper, but as a starting point that's yeah mm-hmm. um, but i like uh, i think um uh, eugenia Flynn in um, in the podcast in a beverly Wayne podcast um, oh something about race, I should really know this, but she does discuss the you know, for Indigenous women, the problematic aspects of the term people of colour in that it does erase and it does mm. homogenise. Um, and we do need to, yeah, we do need to work out better terminology or we do need to make sure we're drilling down. But, um, yeah, compared to compared to the terms I had personally before person of colour, like peop- person of colour is an improvement mm. as far as I'm concerned.
7: if I could um, just kind of put a bit of a historical overlay as well on this. Um, I was born in the 60s, and back then I was a new Australian. And then, um, I'm not sure what happened in the 70s. We might have still been new Australians, but then suddenly (laughs) in the 80s we became ethnics. Mm -hmm. And then in the 90s we became culturally and linguistically diverse. Um, And none of those labels ever described who we were or... Um, what we mean to this country as migrants. Um, And all of them were imposed from bureaucracies or governments or um, political processes that had really very little to do with who we were and very much to do with what Australia needed um, and, you know, policies on immigration um, and the like. So I guess there's always a sense of um, ambiguity when we talk about labels But at the same time, I think that there are some real positives in that they um, define a group, and that can be a really great platform. And I think that's some some of the things that we've been um, talking about here, that it creates a platform for um, political activism, um, and it also creates a possibility of reaching across those categories um, to people who either identify as other or have been labelled as other or both, um, and to think about what brings us, um, you know, what kind of activism we can do across those Mm -hmm. boundaries as well. So I guess there's both, um, you know, really frustrating and uh, terrible things Mm. about being (laughs) labelled and not having your own kind of definition that you can use yourself. Um, But all of those labels are completely problematic as they are empowering. Mm.
3: And coming back to activism um, and maybe more beyond sort of labels. Um, so w- what are some recent developments in activism within your specific uh, communities or areas that you work within? Um, I suppose, can we start? Iris, do you want to start? Hit that one off?
2: Oh, gosh. Um. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Pressure's on. <laughs>
2: mm. Well, I don't know if I can, like, speak to specifically. Um, just on trans stuff. But like, why I'm thinking more broadly about activism that mm. has come up in cases that I think need more attention. And um, last month, CJ Palmer, who's a trans woman and former sex worker, she was in prison for six years because of alleged transmission of HIV to an ex-partner. And I think, and I suppose, yeah, Skyward Alliance had done a lot of activism around her and, like, people only get in prison with under um, that thing because of prejudice, to prejudice really, because you can't really prove it. And I suppose a lot of activism around HIV and around around prison abolition um, are, like, areas I think, like, yeah, people doing really important work and need, And I think, like, feminism needs to, yeah, focus more, um, more on abolition of prisons because mm-hmm. we look at the sort of people that are in prisons, like HIV-positive people, trans women indigenous women like over represented in in prisons as well as people um, women of colour. And I think, yeah, um sort of activism around in like institutions like the prison I think um is an area that I've been thinking about a lot more recently. Yeah.
0: So you're
3: listening to uh, 3CR on our special um, International Women's Day uh, broadcast, um, and we're talking at the minute about um, activism um, and developments in activism in sort of um, uh, fe- mm. sort of feminist um, uh, ways in terms of. Um, Tackling power structures, mm. so um, hella uh, what uh, do you know or what, what are some recent developments in activism that you that you're aware of mm. that you'd like to talk about?
5: My ignorance is really going to show right now <laughs> um, yeah i can't i can 't off the top of my head um, think of things, but I mean in you know the Muslim community in the Egyptian community, in the wider Middle eastern and African community, activism is just. I mean, we exist, therefore we are activists kind of thing. Um, Because, yeah, there's there's kind of no way around that. Um, But, you know, more broadly, like a lot of... um, There has been a lot of activism coming out of my community um, or, like, overseas, you know, back home, the obvious, like, Arab Spring. But um, even I was watching... I was at the Feminist Film Festival, I think, last year. um, And they had a short film um, that kind of... Uh, that focused on five women in the Syrian civil um, civil war, the conflict happening there, and the kind of leadership roles they're taking as you know, as community organizers and as um, uh, advocates and all of that. So yeah, th- th- it was just it's it's constant. We never actually we never sit back and rest on our laurels or anything. But unfortunately, I cannot think of a single mm. thing right now. Um, Oh, there was um uh, there was the uh the protests of Milo and I can never say his mouse name because I don't want to bother learning it. <laughs> um, uh there was the protests in um the Flemington uh, Flemington Kensington area, the high rise where you know, the community really rallied. Like they came out in droves and um and, you know, so it started off with a smaller group and then, you know, the people, the locals, the residents who are generally African, predominantly um, migrants, uh, you know, Middle Eastern, that kind of thing, came out and stood up and said, we're, this is not okay. Like, this is, it's not okay to have your hate speech in our community, especially in that community. Like, I can't help but think they chose that place on purpose. Mm. Um,
3: they totally did choose that place on purpose. Right. Right across from yeah. the, the high rises. Just
5: despite yeah. them. And then... And then God, uh, the police reaction in that, like the videos that came out of that. I was actually at a protest um, earlier, not that one. Like I think a week or two before that, um, uh, there was the refugee, um, you know, bring them home. They, when they started kicking people off Manus, um, mm. I and you know, the police presence was shocking. Like I had never seen anything like that. And I go to protests pretty reg- well fairly regularly, mm. and the police presence. Was unlike anything I'd ever seen. It was almost military-like, um, mm-hmm. and then and then it got even worse. There, um, you know, there was videos of pepper spray. They like came into the flats. They really invaded spaces, and they yeah. So there's, I mean, there's a lot of activism happening around around that. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Um, and you know, talking about. So I was at the um, Kensington thingy with that Milo idiot. Um, <laughs> sorry. I'm... Just I say that? Oh, I say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm okay with this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, There's much ruder terms for him, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, which I wish I could say on air, mm. but I won't. Um, so uh, right until, until the end, and I can't help, just by looking at uh, what, what happened, um, I can't help but think, you know, it was the police's testing ground for their tactics. They were testing out tactics because mm. it was just so unnecessary. They were, they were mm. pushing and shoving people mm. That were doing absolutely nothing. So, right. and pepper spraying, people that were just hanging out outside the flats yeah. doing, doing nothing. So, well, that's they
4: were what being I can't black. So. Yeah. And they yeah. live in that area. It's, it's mm. their backyard. So, when they're telling yeah. them to go home, it's like, I'm outside of my building. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you, right do you want me to go? <laughs> go. <It's like> <laughs> yeah.
3: So, um, so um, Adele, I suppose, um, you know, within the sector that you work in, what are some sort of stuff that you've been seeing in terms of um, really, uh, in terms of feminist activists?
7: Um, I'm really lucky to belong to a sector that um, has been very active around not only women's health, but the big um, issue, I guess, for, for women um, in, in Australia is violence against women. Mm. And this is something that obviously we've, as feminists we've been active about for many, many years, but... We've been lucky in Victoria in that we've had the Royal Commission um, to, into family violence. And that has really institutionalised, I suppose, some of that um, the activism. So uh, it's been amazing to see what you can achieve when you get governments on board in relation to violence against women. Um, but it's also fantastic to be part of a sector in women's health and also the, um, the, the women's refuges and, and other family violence services that has been able to um, create some amazing advances. Um, so ultimately, I guess, you know, we all want to eliminate violence against women um, and there's been a strong movement towards thinking about prevention and how you can achieve um, a world without violence against women. Of course that's a very long term aim um, and at the same time we're also looking at how we can make sure that women who are experiencing violence have got um, all the support that they need to um, get out of it at an early point and um, rebuild their lives. Mm.
3: Um, and Shakira, did you want to add anything to that?
7: Yes, I was going to say uh,
0: handling that in particular Communities and Muslim community being one and having spoken with Aboriginal women about this I know that there are some issues there when, it's, when violence against women which is as we know or we, as we should know prevalent across all ethnicities and races um, gets represented as being particular to a specific community mm-hmm. and their men are more violent than our men it becomes then very difficult for women within those communities to speak out against that and you're more inclined to keep your mouth shut and you will be told in quite explicit terms, "Oh, yes, okay, that's that's dreadful, but don't say it where anybody from outside might hear because you know they'll use it as ammunition against all of us. And so this racialisation of of the violence against women issue is something that is very... It's. I was about to say, complex. it really isn't all that complex. It's used in this highly opportunistic way. It's mm. pretty straightforward. But knowing how to handle it, finding ways to speak about it, and um, to maintain that no, we're not going to solve racism before we start tackling this. Mm. Um, that's not going to work. We've, you know, because we can't afford to wait for that long. Is difficult but necessary labour and, um, yeah, and it is getting I think I'm not sure that it's getting easier but it's getting less isolating to do that mm. in Muslim communities than it has been, there's more platforms to speak from but at the same time you still you know that when you do that y- your voice is going to be appropriated by people who you would cross the street to avoid and that just comes with the territory really and I think the only way to deal with that is just to know that they don't get the last word Mm. that um, yes okay if you say something then yeah then um, Andrew Bolt or somebody like that is probably going to use your words against others but that's not a reason to keep quiet You, you have to We've, I think most Muslims feel like there's this invisible Andrew Bolt on our shoulders, listening <laughs> at all times. But just gotta, you just got to—you can't tell him to shut up. He's not going to shut up. You're just going to have to say no, Andrew, and you know, and keep talking regardless. Mm.
3: Um, so you're listening to uh, 3CR on our International Women's Day special, um, and we just had a discussion on feminism and uh, his- the history. I suppose of it sort of went in um, all, in- all, t- all t- sorts of interesting places. Uh, but now we're going to play a track. Um, so yeah, we'll c- we'll be back with a decolonisation panel after this. I'm
7: Tari Sultana, and you are listening to 3CR.
0: Please subscribe. Do yourselves a massive favour. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm Nova Paris and you're listening to 3CR. Be proud, be strong.
1: You have a smile
5: Hello, I am Mahsa Vahdat Hi, I'm Marjan and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855
0: AM on your radio dial. Also on digital radio and streaming at 3CR.org.au. Please subscribe.
6: Keep going, 3CR. You're
5: listening to 3CR Radio. From the and you're listening to 3CR.
3: We need your help to support community radio and your local music scene.
6: Able-bodied Australia does not realise that people with disabilities across the board are being discriminated against. Then the government to demand that we go out and get a job Without removing the disincentives like the lack of access to transport and community infrastructure, without providing accessible buildings that can provide barrier-free employment, I'm not getting a fair go and I don't like it and I'm saying so.
7: You're listening to 3CR 855 on the AM dial.
4: Good morning. You're listening to a Thursday breakfast with myself, Ayan, um, Shara Hard and uh, Grace. Sure. I, butchered <laughs> your, I
1: butchered your name. I your look, name. looked okay. at you you know straight when I, in the eyes.
3: Yeah. You know what <laughs> I knew
4: I was gonna mispronounce
3: it. When I got my um, when I was graduating, um we had to put the phonetic our uh, names, yeah. like um spelling of our name, uh, so the person wouldn't, you know, butcher our names. Um, and the, so my name's Shehrazad. um, and the person, I don't know how he did this, but he was a white dude, so probably that's why, um, he was like, she, he, za, ray, de, and he, oh yeah, sorry, he used that as my second name, and used my, my second name as my first name, because it was easier, because it's Sarah. Well so, wow. like so anyway, just, <laughs> just, all just, that. Uh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> anyway, so you're listening to uh, 3CR 3CR Breakfast Special for International Women's Day, um, it's part of a whole day of um, awesome uh, stuff with female-identifying uh, presenters and programs. Um, can you have a female identifying program? Oh no, that's a weird thing to say. <laughs> and so we, we just had a track. Grace, what was that track that we just listened to?
6: Um, so the last
0: one was the Dixie Chicks, and it was Goodbye Earl, which I personally think is one of the best songs ever invented, or made, or whatever. And before that, we heard from Jesus and His Judgmental Father, which is a queer pop punk band from Leeds who are all really amazing as
3: well. Mm. They are pretty cool, aren't they? Um, so, we've got a, a special panel on this morning. Um, so, we've got four people in the studio. Um, so, we've got uh, Shakira Hussein, who's an academic, academic and writer. Um, she's also written a book, From Victims to Suspects, Muslim Women Since 9-11, which delved into narratives around Muslim women in serving political purposes. Uh, we also have Adele. Adele Mudolo, I hope I'm not butchering that name, um, who is the Executive Director of the Multicultural Centre for Women's Health. And
4: who else do we have, Ian? Um And we have Hela Ibrahim, who is um, an editor, and she's also the founder and publisher, um, well, she's the founder and of the publication, DEG Dej. Jed. Jed? That's Press? okay. Literally everybody Jed. makes that mistake. You know why. I'm of changing the name. For our <laughs> listeners,
5: it's spelled D J E D. It's in, yeah, it's it's an Egyptian, it comes from ancient Egypt. And, yes, and uh, I? Yeah. So the the D is there to make sure you have a sharp J sound so I don't you don't take it off otherwise you'd say Jed, a jed. instead of Jed. It's you know what, it's fine. Call it whatever you like. N- no,
4: no, no. I, I I want to be as accurate as possible because I know what it feels like to have my name butchered. Um and we also have Iris Lee. Iris Lee is a writer, activist, and um she also presents three CRs querying the air. Um so welcome back. Just before the track, we were discussing um, history of feminism and um, our lovely presenters were sharing um, their, uh, I guess, the stories and um, thoughts on uh, language and whether um, feminism uh, is accessible and how we can make it more accessible. And the next panel is on decolonization.
3: Yeah, yeah. So as we talked about in... Um Sort of the previous panel touched upon maybe um, uh, sort of the history of feminism um, is based on sort of Western conceptualizations of of um, uh, of the term. Let's just say that, <laughs> and the current globalized context centers on sort of the white middle class heteronormative ableists sort of stuff um, and wipes out other perspectives and voices. Mm. Um, so I suppose Shakira. What would be your view on
0: that? I used to always associate International Women's Day with these events in Canberra, <coughs> which there would be posters of third-world women <coughs> on the wall in the background, third-world women in picturesque costumes in fields doing you know, attractive but presumably extremely arduous labour. And then all these basically white public servants and a few i think diplomats' wives more often than diplomats, adding a bit of color to this otherwise very you know white predication, but the, you know, basically the posters and the women i I actually didn't have a term for the uh, well or the term that I just used in my head was not my kind of feminism. Mm-hmm. And, in, and I would always turn up because they would have the resources often to have bought a really international, uh, interesting speaker from overseas. So I would want to hear this grouping international speaker, and then you would think, and, and I, but then you'd, I'd be getting increasingly angry with the audience each year, a little more angry. I remember on one occasion there was this um, Afghan... At the time, no, I think she was already not an MP. She had been an MP, but quite a left-wing, feminist MP, um, Malala Joya, and I. It was during the Howard years, and I went to ask her a question about, you know, mandatory detention, and I just got interrupted by the local. You know, UN Women's Committee, I think, was hosting it, by saying, oh, Malala, um, she, Malala, Malala is here to talk about Afghanistan, not to talk about Australian immigration policy. And, I thought, and again, I just thought, this is not my kind of feminism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I didn't actually bother to try and break it. For all I was doing a PhD, I didn't really bother to try and break it down any further than that, because it's, it wasn't... That type of feminism was... It, it was very powerful, of course, because of its association with government and, um, and with policymaking, but it was possible to be a feminist and be largely unaware of, or not so much, and to largely ignore its existence. But it's become, for one thing, it's become more visible, and then in association with that, this kind of corporate feminism too has, has become more visible yet. And so I think it's much less possible now to just get on with your own type of feminism, with your own little crew, and and just let the other one be simmering away in the background, and you know, or or above. Mm. And, but Adele would maybe have more. Uh,
7: yeah. I'll, oh. um, well, the thing that's come to mind for me is the um, some of the reading that I was doing um, for some research that I was doing about the history of feminism in Australia. And I was reading all these. I mean, there isn't a lot of history written about feminism in Australia, but what was written was all um, pretty consistent and it had a particular timeline. And it actually didn't really include very many um, migrant or refugee women as feminists. Um, Migrant and refugee women appeared in these texts as the beneficiaries of feminism or the victims of patriarchy, mm. um, but they very rarely were written about as being acti- activists, as being um, the agents of feminism. So, uh, and, that, and that really grated with me because I was also, at the same time as I was reading this history and, and writing my own work, I was working with a whole lot of Immigrant and refugee women who identified as Mm feminists and who were very active um, and who did things like set up migrant women's refuge or set up um, services for migrant women because migrant women weren't getting what they needed out of the mainstream services. Um, in response to the racism that they're experiencing. So I guess that's, um, for me, was a really interesting process of working, um, identifying the absence and, and the invisibility and then tracing back what created that invisibility. And I think we're still, we're still there today. I don't think we um, yet have good, a good understanding of what migrant and refugee women as feminist activists have contributed to the movement. Um, nor do we have a good recognition of what migrant and refugee women continue to contribute to the movement.
3: Um, and also, I just would like to um, say that uh, we, at the, at the minute, so we're talking about sort of decolonising feminism and that sort of stuff, but we don't actually have any panel members who are First Nations people um, here. We do need to remember that we are on First uh, Nations land. Um, so, um, you know, and that's. I think a big part of, of uh, discussions need to centre on indigeneity as well because that's a massive issue. What did you want to say, Hella?
5: Um Yeah, so, I mean, uh, quite a number of things spring to mind on this topic. Um, much like Shakira, I'm, uh, I'm not here for white feminism um, just because, you know... White feminism has been telling me for years that my people are oppressed, whether we like it or not. Like, oh, you wear a hijab, Are oh, you're Muslim, oh, you're Arab, like, oh, your people are oppressed. And it's like, no matter how, like, with certain types of, like, with certain people, no matter how you try to come at it and try to convince them, like, hey, I'm actually not oppressed, but, you know, thanks for your concern, it just... So so that's one thing. But um speaking of indigeneity, um, so the National Library of Australia sent out a tweet, I think last month or sometime this year, um, where they were like, you know, a proud moment for Australia, you know, on this day 100 years ago, you know, celebrating 100 years of women getting the vote. Um, And it was, you know, something like, you know, 1895, I, I don't even remember the year. It's like, you know, South Australia granted women the right to vote and therefore women around Australia got the right to vote. And there was this complete... Refusal to engage with the fact that actually um, Aboriginal people didn't get the right to vote until 1962. And, oh, not even, so, sorry, no, Queensland being Queensland, <laughs> um, it was 1965. 1965 is when all women in Australia got the right to vote, and there is, from a very high, like, this is the National Library of Australia, and so from very high up, where there is this refusal to see... Um, Anything but a white kind of narrative, um, so so yeah, it is really important to talk about that there is there are huge gaps um, in how we discuss it and how we approach it and how we remember our history. Um,
0: yeah. Well, white feminism too in discussing reproductive rights, always talks about it in terms of presumptively white women having access to safe birth control. For the purpose of recreational sex, mm-hmm. without discussing that the pill was basically that Puerto Rican women basically were used mm-hmm. and again in the Dallas. is more adult than mine. As as guinea pigs and died. You know, I I don't know the numbers, but died prematurely from being given at a higher doses. And it was and it was not developed in order to liberate white women from unwanted pregnancy, it was liberated in order to make sure that the, that the wrong kind of women, which was lower class and black and immigrant women were not going to be outbreeding the white guys and we can still see that with that former Labour Party MP and was he what was he minister for, Gary Johns was it? who published a book of, in the last couple of years saying no contraception, no dole. Um, wow. and, and, and who said, yes, this would disproportionately affect Aboriginal women, but that's all to the good, you know. Mm. And that, I think that sort of eugenics um, yeah. way of thinking is actually becoming more prevalent, and we need to be extremely alert to it, and that for women who are not basic middle-class white women, reproductive rights, has much more often been about asserting your right to have kids and asserting your right to raise them yourself.
5: Yeah, and there's forced sterilisation. Yes. Um, that happened a lot, and, yeah. And for
0: disabled women, it's still, you know, an mm-hmm. ongoing struggle t- for them to assert their rights to, to have kids, to control their own fertility, not to be forcibly sterilized mm. Mm.
3: Um and so when we we talk about decolonization of of feminism I suppose what does that what does that mean to to you guys Maybe I should oh, sorry I should start, Okay I'll start with Shakira what does that mean to you Shakira
0: It means rendering feminists who are not Clem Ford. <laughs> 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 rendering us visible <laughs> sorry um <coughs> it um, yeah, it, it means having our voices heard. Just first start. It means um, yeah, it 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 means not imagining all women as being, as I said, middle class white women. It means, and it, it also means noting that for women, you know, well, I'll stick with Muslim women because that's what I'm most familiar with. Actually, like. It's not always going to be issues around your gender that are going to be at the very top of your list of concerns. It's going to at the moment be to do with the securitisation of Muslim identity and the way that that gets played into racial identity. It's going to be concern for the kind of hate that's being di- and fear that's being directed at your you know your father, your brothers, your sons as well as your mothers your, and your sisters and your daughters. And you know, and all of these processes are very gendered as well. But they're not what comes immediately to mind when you think in terms of feminism. It's going to be concern f- in many cases for relatives in y- your country of origin, and um, and in fighting those issues, you know, as women, I think that's a very feminist act to be done. But it's not, as I say, normally brought under the label of feminism and I think decolonising feminism is recognising the multifaceted ways in which women are acting. And could I just talk about what I think has gone, you know, really somehow slipped under the radar and not been highlighted, which is is this allegedly female-friendly policy that was introduced by Malcolm Turnbull when he just first became Prime Minister. which is this, immigra- this refugee, um, this immigration policy, which um, the, the special refugee intake from Syria and Iraq, which, if you recall, was hap- unfolding in sort of the final weeks of the Abbott prime ministership and the first weeks of the Turnbull prime ministership, and Turnbull announced that and Abbott had been resistant to... Uh, increasing the refugee intake and mm. in recognition of that crisis. And Turnbull said, yes, he would, absolutely. But on the basis, it was going to be only for women and families and no unaccompanied men. And, like, mm. I can't see that as a feminist act. Mm. You know, and, and it was with this very explicit, oh, because if we, we, we are not allowing in any more Muslim men. And then they t- the line about oh, it's not ra- oh, and and from religious minorities, like and and then said oh, and me- meaning like because of course there were Christian refugees. Mm-hmm. Oh, but it's not racially discriminatory because we're also allowing some m- Muslim minorities. Yeah. That is, that doesn't make it. How is that make it not no. religious discriminatory? The, and the UN. Um, says that the largest number of refugees from that area are, mm. do not belong to a religious minority. And, not, you know.
4: and the fact that Islam's become racialized as well. Yeah, yes. So I, that's not discussed. Everyone's like, I can't be I'm racist to Islam because Islam doesn't have a race. And you're like, yeah, but the way Islam has, has become constructed as like a, the religion of brown and black people. And because of that, yeah. I
0: mean I like Judaism is a religion except it's not and we know yeah. that it's not mm. in, in that context. And Iris, um I mean it's a religion as well as a race. Yeah. Mm,
2: mm,
4: mm, mm. Um what's what are your ideas about um decolonization or feminism?
2: Or even just
3: decentring.
2: Decentring. Yeah, yeah. Um yeah, I guess it it goes down to like your position and as a white non indigenous person it involves uh, uh, educating people in a similar position about me and having a lot of discussions about decolonisation and following the lead of organisations like the Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance who are like doing like the most important activist work on these stolen lands and yeah all the stuff around that like the manifesto on F-Australia and that sort of stuff although that sort of ag- like broader gender is stuff needs to be centred in feminism and yeah, settler like colonialism needs to be centered as like like the ways in which, yeah, I'm complicit in that structure mm. and thinking about that. Um and in terms of things coming up, there's the Stolen Love games coming up n- next month in on Bundjalung Country, the Gold Coast, and there's a and Robbie Thorpe's got an info session on Saturday afternoon and there's also a fundraiser on Friday night at Rubik's Warehouse. Mm. Um, at 6 or 7pm.
4: Are you going? Because I will be there. Yeah. (laughs) I'll be there too. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Party come Saturday. And Hela?
5: Um, I mean, I, you know, I agree with, well, with what everybody said so far. Um, so, you know, seconding all of that. Um, I guess I'd also kind of want to make the point that I don't necessarily think it's just about, um racial issues um so i think i think a lot of other things come to play i don't think i mean not that i'm dictating how you can be a feminist or anything but i think feminists who are ableist or transphobic or queerphobic or whatever phobic Mm. um i also i don't buy into that feminism either um so Mm. i think i think part of it is you know recognizing um Yeah, just kind of what we were saying earlier about intersectionality now just becoming um, a soundbite and whatever, but, like, actually actively working towards intersectionality in a real way as opposed to here's a nice slogan for your Um, (laughs) T-shirt. So, yeah, so just, yeah... Oh,
4: here's a
5: pussy hat for. Oh, good um, lord! Yeah.
4: Oh, Becky feminism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean.
5: So it's I think I think it's really important to kind of take a step back and reckon. I mean, it is obviously race. Racial issues are a huge part of it, but there are so many other intersections to come at it. Mm. And you know, if your feminism doesn't encompass all women of all abilities of all races and whatever, like then what good is it? Yeah. And when you think about like mm-hmm. issues
4: like the cashless welfare card mm. now that's being trialed, which is pretty much a card um, where 80% of the money, the government dictates how that money will be sent. So if you're on, um, I think, Start Allowance, if you're on some type of benefit, you're given this card, and the government basically allocates how much you can spend and where you can spend it. Mm. So obviously dictating where you can spend it, that means a lot of these corporations are going to be making money. And mm. what people don't understand is it usually affects people in remote communities. Mm. So um, uh, black folks in remote communities and knowing that there's lack of infrastructure in remote communities and people are expected to, you know, meet, um, meet all these, like, um, uh, conditions, yeah. and it's kind of hard when you live in remote communities. So, A, your money is being dictated, mm. and B, you're also expected to um, meet all these, like, job active yeah. um, requirements, and 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 I've noticed that's not being talked about. Yeah, but class privilege doesn't come up a
1: lot, does yeah, it? Yeah,
4: at, at all, at all, and what people don't realise is the remote community, that's the first community that things are trialled on. Mm. If it starts with a remote community, you can best believe it's going to affect the folks in the city. So even if you don't care about the people in the remote community, mm. no, your family's going to be yeah. next.
3: Well, usually they, the government's favourite testing ground is Indigenous. Uh, it's, it's remote communities. Um, yeah. That's where they test. Yeah, but
6: making that explicit, that yeah. that's Indigenous communities yeah. where mm. they're testing all yeah. of that.
3: Yeah. It's, a, yeah. it's part of... um broader, um, you know, ongoing colonisation and the wiping out of of indigeneity. Um, I suppose when we talk about intersectionality and inclusive feminism, uh, what do you think that would look like in the Australian context? I suppose, Adele, would you like to speak on this first?
7: Yes, I'd love to. Um, Kimberly Crenshaw, who was an African-American, or oh she still is, African-American lawyer, <laughs> and who um, first started talking about intersectionality um, as we think about it today, um, although it was spoken about actually quite a bit earlier by the Combahee River Collective um, mm-hmm. in the US. But um, Kimberly Crenshaw has said that unless feminism can also be anti-racist, so proactively anti-racist, and I guess that goes for every other um, issue that we've talked about, it needs to combat not only um, racism but all of the other systems and structures that impact on women, Um, then it's really not doing its job. It's not actually um, benefiting all women. So I guess that, for me, a feminism in Australia that can actually do its job um, has to be intersectional and it has to be able to um, incorporate all of the the issues that impact on women. Look at all the policies that, like um, the welfare card, like Mm. um, migration policy, like, you know, the the temporary visas which impact badly on um, women, like marriage Mm. equality as an issue um, and homophobia. I think that unless it can also incorporate all of those issues into its feminism, it's really not um, doing what we need it to do.
0: Could I add a rider to the stuff about accessible language? How about accessible space? Oh. I have multiple sclerosis mm. on top of everything else, and, yeah, it is... It, I'm... You know, I, I ought not to be taken aback, but I am nonetheless taken aback by how many feminist events still take place in, in venues that are not physically accessible... In, mm. unless you're, you know, able to handle stairs and mm. sometimes quite a few stairs. And, yeah, and I realise that feminist organisations have budgets and, you know, it can be more expensive and, you, you, you know, and, and if your mate's giving you a better deal on you know, and all of those topics, but it still needs to be a priority to... Be holding them in accessible spaces. I think a lot of women kind of discover, in a minor way, or get a premonition of what this might be like when they've got a baby in a pram and mm. they can't get the pram up the stairs. But you know, if you think it's hard to get the pram and a and a baby up the stairs, try getting yourself up the stairs, <laughs> you know, and and you know, and on a long term basis. And I am not, it's, I am not as limited as many I use of elbow crutch I don't use a wheelchair but you know it's still a regular issue that I will turn up for something and find that I need and or that I need physical help from somebody else to get up the stairs and so I'm calculating who else might be there who I feel comfortable Mm. about you know um having my arm around them as you know um and yeah I I don't know. I think I'm just destined to always be the most bad-tempered person at any event.
3: <laughs> <laughs> which is fine. We can, we
4: and w- and which is it. legitimate as well. <laughs> <laughs> like, it doesn't come out of nowhere. It's, it comes out of your right to exist. And yes. Mm. yes, and,
0: and yes. <laughs>
3: so, um... Intersectionality, hello. Sorry, you are just about to drink some water. Like <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I said earlier,
5: I have a cough, so I'm trying really hard to just kind of swallow it. Yeah, there. yeah, no problem.
3: Um, I suppose, uh, Iris, intersectionality in Australia, um, you know, how, how what would it look like to have sort of inclusive or intersectional feminism?
2: Um, yeah, I think it would be... Like, massively, diff- like I suppose, like, mainstream pers- feminism, mainstream liberal feminism, I suppose, is a good example of what not t- to do. <laughs> um,
0: <laughs>
2: so, it wouldn't look like
0: that. But, um, I think that's the best comment I've heard. <laughs> that
1: yeah, <that's> so good. <laughs> you to tweet that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, we just, please
3: get
0: on that. Feminism, you're doing it wrong, Australia. <laughs>
2: That we're uh-huh. seeing, particularly with like a lot of the black women in Warriors of resistance, and internationally with activist organisations like Sisters Uncut and the Black Lives Matter movement, that's across the globe. We're seeing that's like the, I think that's like the way forward for like feminist social movements. I think, mm. uh-huh. and that's the sort of thing it's becoming looking like. I guess, yeah.
4: yeah. I don't know which writer said this, but there's a saying: um, Black women are the mule of the world. So if if you can um, empower a black woman and you can change the position, then that benefits everybody in the community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So why wouldn't you be invested in, you know, supporting them? It, it just makes no sense. Um, so can we, because uh, there's a popular, um, the gender pay gap, I've noticed um, the, the issues surrounding the gender um, pay gap, there's usually a voice that's not prioritised, uh, um, well, a few voices, and that's usually um, folks who aren't in the corporate world mm. who, you know, are um, doing menial work for um, minimum money, I guess. And why do you think it's important to prioritise those voices in in discussions about yeah gender pay gap
5: okay um i mean this isn't necessarily specific to the gender pay gap but i have huge issues and if you know me you know i rant about this constantly Mm. but unpaid work and underpaid work and internships are just Mm. they Mm. are toxic and they are everywhere and i do think it disproportionately affects women and women of color specifically more than it affects our male counterparts so that's that's one thing um and in terms of in terms of the pay gap um, as it applies to people who aren't working um at a corporate level, I mean again, I'm not an academic, so I don't know the language around it, but it just in my head, it's kind of like you know you need your menial labors. I don't even like the word menial just on a side note, but um you need the people who are working in factories and you need the people who are working you know who are making your coffee and are cleaning your floors and looking after your your children and your
0: elderly parents care workers yeah care workers
5: hugely important um the world would stop like i'm sure the world would stop if you know corporations like you know your ceos stopped working but i really like you know it's it's i think it's i wish they would
0: (laughs) can't they go on strike please
5: why would they they get paid um, and while they're going on strike, um,
4: while middle cl- white middle-class women will be at the International Women's Day rally, mm. who's going to be looking after their kids. Mm. Mm. But yeah,
5: so, yeah, so I, I think it's hugely important to kind of lift us up from the bottom up so everybody gets raised up along with us, as opposed to just skimming, like, you know, touching on the top levels of society or whatever. Um, yeah.
7: I say, um, the the work that we do at Multicultural Centre for Women's Health is um, we go and visit migrant women workers in their workplaces. So it started off back in the 70s very much focused on factories and we'd go to um, talk to migrant women in their lunch breaks about um, contraception and other issues. Um, And these days there are still lots of migrant women working in factories so we still go and visit food factories. Um, but it is very much aged care is another industry where 95% migrant women who are providing the direct care to um, Australian elderly people, um, as well as hotel cleaners, support staff and that kind of thing. And the huge issues for um, women in those industries are really the um, casualisation and the, the precarious nature of that work. So mm. whereas you know 25 years ago, you used to be able to get a full-time job in those industries, now it's very much contract and um, and casual. So you really don't know from one day to the next how much money you're going to be bringing in Um, you're also very vulnerable when it comes to occupational health and safety or sexual harassment. So you're much less likely to report sexual harassment if you know that when you report it, you are likely not to have a job the next day because you're casual and you just won't be asked back in. Mm -hmm. So I think, uh, and these are issues that, you know, of course, sexual harassment affects all women from all classes and all um, forms of work but it really does um, impact quite differently on women in, those, um, in the casual and precarious jobs. So I think that, um, that that's really what we need to be centering in our feminism, thinking about um, how we can improve working conditions, how we can address some of those issues for people in, in intern- unpaid internships, young people um, also mm-hmm. who are very much in casualised jobs, migrant workers on um, temporary visas and that kind of thing, international students as well.
3: Um, And also, I
7: suppose, um,
3: uh, part of just coming off the back of the sort of sexual harassment, um, of sexual harassment in general, um, I don't know, like so much about this campaign, but there was this campaign, Me Too, um, <laughs> uh, which I've you know, tried to stay as much away from it as mm. possible, um, purely because oh, I suppose you know a bit more about it, Ayan. So Me Too, it was actually started by African-American women, <laughs> <laughs> um, and it was hijacked by...
4: Alice Milano. Yeah, that's it. I was going to say the girl from Charms. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she She's actually be my favourite in Charmed. Oh, no. I, I, know, I know, I know, I um, know. Yeah, so it's, it started with um, Tarana Burke in, I think, 2006, and she created this hashtag as a way for young black and Latino women who've experienced um, sexual violence. So for them to go on this hashtag and find resources for themselves on how to deal with um, uh, basically where to get support and so on and only recently did it receive traction and everyone, I mean yes, um, uh, what's her name Milo? Milano <laughs> Milo, Milano, I'm, I'm so bad at names that other I know right, <laughs> I mean they are kin um, so uh, yeah, so now everyone's sort of forgotten about it and yes, it's it, People are um, learning more about Tarana Burke and so on. Um, but what do you think about, um, uh, sorry, um, about the Me Too hashtag and just hashtags in general and how they can sometimes be um, taken over or diluted mm-hmm. by like mainstream ideas? Um, just going to
5: talk to Sorry. Okay. I um, no, I think. I mean. Me Too, for me, was pretty, yeah, it was, I know it wasn't created by a white woman, but for me it was very much a white woman kind of Mm -hmm. feminist thing. Um, Just because I've, like, and again, this is, like, I am just going to homogenize everybody in this statement, but it was just keyboard activism, which can, which, you know, can be useful sometimes, but I don't, I think a lot of the discussions, like, depth and nuance, and to be honest, my social media accounts were flooded with it for weeks, and that was traumatizing Um, I didn't want to participate in that hashtag. Um, And there was this, it's this whole kind of, I don't know if this is necessarily a white thing, but this whole white thing about um, coming out about your trauma. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's like, actually, I don't want to share that with the world. Or I don't want to, like, this is not how I deal with things in my community. Or this is not how I personally want to deal with it or whatever. But I had to sit there and just like... Constantly and like didn't find out that there was a way to mute that until much later, but like just constant, like you know, this re traumatization, re traumatization. Mm-hmm. And I just i think, and I think that's pretty symptomatic of how whiteness deals with a lot of things where they don't consider the effects of what they're doing. Uh, and it like there's just like, oh no, no, like let's do this great thing and you know, let's have this hashtag and let's um all celebrate it and whatever. And it's kind of like you don't think beyond your own nose sometimes and you don't think about consequences um so that was kind of my problem with the me too hashtag but again i do like that it originated not from a white woman so i'm not gonna and i i do i do know that for a lot of women it was great and it did get a conversation going and Mm. i actually had a great conversation with my little brother about it because he was like you know being uh very typical like you know young teen about it and I'm like well why didn't they like you know why they wait 20 years and like why the blah why is it why is it coming up now and i'm like okay what a great learning i mean i didn't take uh, when he first said it i'm like you're an idiot and i stormed out of the house and <laughs> then came back half an hour later and like apologized and said i love you you're not an idiot i'm really glad you asked and now we're going to sit and have a conversation about it yeah. um so th- so it was good in in some sense uh, it, it did some good did come out of it but I mean, and that's a that's a hashtag that went really huge. What about small hashtags that don't get as much attention? Mm, and take like,
1: back
5: IWD. yeah, hashtag Take Back IWD. Um, why hasn't that gotten like that kind of? Because like, it makes really good points. Like, it's like, you know, International Women's Day. Like, cupcakes don't cupcakes are not going to solve the pay gap. Mm. Um, but yeah, um, so yeah, I, I don't know. I guess I have mixed feelings about
7: Me Too, mm. personally. I'm going to be unpopular and say a good thing about me too. So, yeah, I completely agree with everything that's been said so far. Um, There was something that I really liked about it, which was that um, there's a lot of stigma and taboo around talking about sexual assault and specifically about women talking about their own experiences. And I think, from my experience, sexual assault and sexual harassment and verbal abuse, um, sexualised verbal abuse is pervasive mm. and probably every single person in this room has experienced it. Probably every single listener has experienced it if they're um, a woman. And so I guess there's that thing about putting it out there to say that you're not the only one. It's about a shared experience and even though those experiences are all different and, and I get the, the re-traumatising, um, you know, it can be really traumatic to, to read about some of the um, the things that have happened to women. Um, But on the, I suppose on the positive side for me, it's really important to get it out there and acknowledge how pervasive it is. And, um, you know, when we talk about one in three experiencing domestic violence, it's actually much more than that experiencing some form of um, sexual abuse or harassment. And talking about it, I guess, puts it out there. um, We really need to be talking about it more and happening to a broader range of women. Um, But, yeah, I kind of... Had, had an ambivalence around it but also really thought it was um, a positive thing in many ways.
0: I found it quite isolating actually and I know not the only one I, and some women and a few men men who not coincidentally weren't heterosexual mm-hmm. I know just went off social media altogether for when Me Too was at its mm-hmm. height because you couldn't and these were not People And these were people who had been dealing with this issue on a daily basis for a long time, who hadn't been keeping silent, who actually had been speaking and writing and thinking and, act, and engaged in activism around it. But the way that conversation was taking place in this kind... And also, like I think, I kind of moved past that, but initially sort of um, with this Me Too... But, I, well, as more than one friend said so what if I don't not just post me too but also describe my experience in that particular way does that mean it didn't happen to me because like there's nobody that it didn't happen to but if I'm not putting up the me too hashtag am I saying oh I am one of those unicorns who has never been Mm -hmm. experienced this type of assault and also I think there was certainly initially a lack of attention to what the follow-through would be for supporting women who were speaking out for the first time, mm. you know. And, I, well, there was an article in The Age yesterday saying that the waiting time for appointments with various support services has just blown out completely, you know, which, okay, it's good that these women are feeling that they can come forward, but it would have been useful to have, you know, um, yes, yes, to have been ready with the safety net when they took that jump. Mm. You know, if I... Yeah, as I said, I and others either went off social media altogether when it was at its height or cut back significantly.
3: So you're listening to 3CR uh, Thursday yeah. Breakfast. We have a special on uh, International Women's Day and it's all about taking back International Women's Day. Um, and so we're just talking about decentering and decolonising certain feminisms. Um, so we're going to take a break now. Uh, listen to some music, uh, feminist music, uh, which will be cool. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then uh, come back with our last panel, which will be about all about representation. Um, and so, but unfortunately, Adele Modolo can't join us in our last panel. But it's been so awesome having you on. Thank you so much.
7: It's been a real pleasure, and um, all the best for the the next half hour. Thank you.
3: Na, na,
1: na, 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 na.
5: Make sure you get to the International Women's Day Rally in March in 2018. It's on Thursday the 8th of March at 5.30pm at the State Library. Hear from extraordinary women activists, including unionists, disability rights activists, Aboriginal women and those campaigning against police repression. Join Working Women Across Victoria for IWD on Thursday the 8th of March at 5.30pm at the State Library we have a world to win.
7: Camp Anarchy is on again from March the 10th to the 12th, bringing anarchists, their families and those interested in anarchist ideas together in a relaxing bush setting to share ideas, skills, food, music and laughter. Workshops include... Creative action, mischief and mayhem, cooperative housing, radical parenting, street medics, building real life communities, global warming's local effects, transformative justice, military in Australia and much more. For more info, check out www.campanarchy.org or search for Camp Anarchy 2018 on Facebook. Camp Anarchy is a 3CR supporter. Tune in to Completada Bailable Wednesdays, 6.30pm Let's spice it up in Spanish with a little bit of English Join the feast The
5: ingredients for el completos are
7: Analysis Arts and culture
5: Poetry And music Remember, Wednesday, 6.30pm Tune in
7: So what are you going to say at my funeral now that you've killed me? Here lies the body of the
1: love of my life, whose heart I broke without a gun to
0: my head. Here lies the mother of my children, both living and
7: dead. Rest in peace, my true love, who I took for granted. Most bomb pussy, who because of me, sleep evaded. Her shroud is loneliness. Her God was listening. Her heaven
6: will be a love without betrayal. Ashes to ashes. Dust
1: to side chicks.
3: Okay, and that was, that was uh, Beyonce with, sorry. Um, Please have and- some respect, call it Queen Bee. Queen Yes. Thing. Can I say Queen Beyoncé? Yes. Okay. yes. Queen Beyoncé. <laughs> um, and um, that song um, really encapsulated the sort of Becky feminism, um, mm. which Shakira does love talking about. Um, but anyway, um, <laughs> so you're listening to 3CR Breakfast Special on um, the International Women's Day. It's all about um, taking back... Um, International Women's Day, from w- what it originally started, which was a workers' movement. Um, so now we've got, our, so we've our themes. Well, that was our broader theme for the day. Um, we've had so far um, a panel on sort of history and current feminisms, um, sort of decolonising and decentering certain feminisms, and now um, we're going to hopefully talk about uh, representation and what that means and the problemat- problematization. problematisation of it and uh, stuff like tokenism and that sort of thing. So now we're joined um, on the phone by Jane Green. Um, Jane is currently working on sex worker rights with with the Vixen Collective, um, which is um, Victoria's peer-only sex worker organisation. She is a uh, sex worker, sex worker activist, performance artist with a career spanning over a decade Um, Good morning, Jane.
6: Hey, how are you doing?
3: Not too bad. Thank you for joining us. Um, No problem at all. Also on the panel we have uh, Shakira Hussein, who's an academic and writer. Uh, We have Iris Lee, who's a writer-activist and also presents 3CR's Queering in the Air. And we have Hela Ibrahim, who is an Egyptian-Australian Muslim editor with a passion for activism through writing. Um, So I suppose we could kick off this next section with, um, uh, just straight to it, Um, is representation necessarily problematic?
6: Um,
3: And I suppose, um, Jane, what did you think of that?
6: Oh, it's massively problematic for sex workers, um, primarily because we're so often excluded um, from conversations about our own lives and work. Um, and not just excluded, but our voices are supplanted by other people talking about us um, rather than to us or engaging us in those spaces. And particularly, um, uh, people may be familiar with the term SWRF, so sex worker, exclusionary, radical feminists. We get people that are actually opposing our rights, like SWIRF, um, and arguing against sex workers' human rights, but also not just worse. We get um, religious organisations that oppose sex workers' rights um, and oppose the existence of sex work on moral grounds. Um, that speak over us um, and argue against our rights, uh, and they have a great deal of traction and power in society.
3: Mm, um, and so. Um, Iris, so I just heard you talking about uh, uh, S- uh, Swerth uh, there, Jane. I suppose I just want to um, uh, put the ball into Iris's court. In um, So you've uh, written about Twerf a lot. Twerf, so like sorry.
2: Trans-exclusionary radical feminists, mm-hmm. yeah.
3: Um, could you, um, I suppose, uh, tell us a bit about that?
2: Well, I suppose there are a group of feminists that are um, quite dangerous because they don't believe... I suppose a lot of their energies po- particularly focus on trans women and, be- and a like, a, a harmful and violent view of womanhood that restricts womanhood to cis women. So, um, yeah, and they have a lot of... They're in a lot of positions of power, really, and in academia, really, there's, like, more TERFs than there are, like, trans feminists. Um, and I suppose we have, like, people like Jermaine Greer, who, whose, like, love archives and other archives are bought for $2 million by the University of Melbourne, at the same time as there's not really much like trans feminist stuff at the University of Melbourne but mm. like a prominent feminist like Jermaine Greer, um, they spend two million dollars on on her archives. So we have like a lot of turfs in positions of power. We have a lot of like I think that also changes the nature of debate. It means like we're like trans women and trans feminine people and gender non conforming people are like constantly fighting for like like us being like it's like our gender and that changes like the frame of debate and means like and that that means we can't have bigger discussions about gender and it just restricts the conversation. We can't get to like 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 all this feminist discussion if it's all about like the fact that like we are women or whoever we say we are other genders as well. So yeah. And so in that way cis cis-femin- feminism benefits from having like these extreme tasks because it changes the debate and they get to feel uncomfortable <laughs> because everything's focused on their like, psych-extreme position.
6: Mm-hmm. Yeah, can, if, sorry, it's Jane again. Yes. Like, they're often two sides of the same coin, too. The people that are sex worker exclusionary radical feminists are often trans exclusionary mm. radical feminists as well. Um, so people like Sheila Jeffries, for example, who used to have tenure at Melbourne University, um, had very extreme views on both um so it's very common that, that people that are uh, that are against um sex worker community are against um, trans community. And uh, Sherla Jeffries so
0: wasn't keen on Muslim women in the scarves either. Yeah.
6: Hmm.
0: And um our next question, um
4: because you're I'm assuming all of you are invited to um similar panels like the one today um, when you're on a panel such as this one, what are the pressures that people place on you to represent a particular community, and how do you deal with that?
5: So I haven't actually – I actually don't do many panels. Um, this is this is a, like, really cool, unusual occurrence for me. Wait till – Yeah, w- we'll see. Um, where I find it, actually, is less in panels and more in the workplace um, – and it's it's funny, um, I, I mean, I don't know if we're just talking about representation or if we're also talking about tokenism um, with this oh, question, yeah. but um, uh, it's, so, I mean, in the publish, you know, publishing is a pretty wide industry, right? Um, so there isn't a lot of representation happening, um, there are pushes for it, there are hashtags around it, we need diverse books, you know, hashtag own voices, I don't know. You know, big proponent of we need diverse editors and all of that. Um, so, so we do have a problem of not enough representation happening,
0: um, and I or representation th- of a particular type because there's a huge appetite for books by Muslim women, but books yes. by Muslim women about how oppressed we yes, are. Yes, 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 that's harem horror our um, narratives, trauma porn, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um,
5: and that's and so I think there's a lot to be said on exactly that topic. Where when we are given space for like as writers, um, not that I am a writer often, um, but as writers we're given space to for certain things. And there's been a lot of research done into it. There's the um, the Jallet Prize, um, which found that um, you know of the books submitted in 2017, I mean less than half came from mainstream publishers, and the ones that did come from mainstream publishers. Um, they were ethnically assigned, and that's including things like cookbooks. So an Asian can write an Asian cookbook, but, you know, a French person could write an Asian cookbook or, or whatever. Um, and there is, yeah, there is, like, you know, we are allowed to talk about being refugees or we are allowed to talk about um, being Aboriginal people or Muslim women and how oppressed we are or whatever. But, you know, if, you, you know, you've got, mm. a like, a black Muslim woman walks into a publisher and says, here's my, like, awesome sci-fi novel, and they're going to be like, eh, like, it's not, so, you know, how representation happens and how it's being done is, yeah, needs a lot of work um, in my industry. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. On the other hand, sorry, um, not sure if Jane wanted to speak there, but...
6: Yeah, sorry, I, I was going to just go and jump in and say it's it, it, absolutely the same for sex workers. There are spaces where it's easier to get traction, um and there's spaces where it's almost impossible, and also there's the investment of energy to get into certain spaces. So, for example, there's been government inquiry processes where we've been specifically excluded, and I mean um, peer organisations like Vixen. In 2015, there was a stakeholder inquiry into a review of the sex work regulations in Victoria, and Vixen, which is the peer organisation for sex workers in Victoria, wasn't included as a stakeholder. Um Now, that's just completely inappropriate. Um, There have been um, reviews and inquiries in other states that I'm aware of where peer organisations were excluded, but religious organisations were included as stakeholders. Um, And often sex workers have to invest a massive amount of time and energy just to get a seat at the table, Mm -hmm. Um, particularly when you're dealing with government um, or mainstream media. And so there's this massive, like, effort you have to put in just to get there, um, where is you're, if you're dealing with often um, community-based um, radio or media or LGBTIQ media, um, then it's a friendlier space and the investment of time to get in those spaces is less. Mm. Um, but often the most important spaces where you need to have your voices heard you have to put in that massive amount of time, and that's a problem. And I think the responsibility of providing that space um, should be with the people in power. Um, because if it's not, if the onus is always on marginalised communities to invest that time to get themselves a seat at the table. Um, then it's perpetuating the inequality. Mm-hmm.
4: And, and do you think there's a pressure to also... Um, Represent your community well, because sometimes it feels like, uh, as a Somali, as a black person, I feel like a walking billboard. So I've got to be, I've got to have my A game on. I, I've got to be like the exceptional minority. So in, in within your uh, communities, I guess um, sub communities or whatever you want to call it, I don't know if that's (coughs) the right term. But is there a pressure to um, (coughs) perform your identity well? If that makes
0: oh yeah, and Muslim women. Talk about this a lot amongst ourselves, and always, and also always having to be the voice of reason, Mm. like for all sides, Mm. and can't show too much emotion. Yeah, 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 and to be the reassurance, and to be this kind of national therapist, sort of okay, everybody, calm down, now don't be scared, Mm. you know, on all sides, it's going to be all right. You know, there's. we're not about to blow you up, white people, and okay, and our oh, white people are probably not about to kill us today. Although mm. looking a bit of a worry, and Pauline Hanson, mm, you know, so like, yeah, always to be this, yeah, always to be calm, mm. always to be reassuring, never, never to, never to look scared of yourself because. um yeah, because then everybody all this their shit, and you know, but but to look a little bit scared, but just a, an appropriate level, you know, not not to look like you're mm-hmm. so frightened. You're not at the steering wheel. You
5: know? Yeah, I wake up every morning um, and check the news, like with my fingers crossed, praying nothing's happened overnight. That's going to be like it, every time, like you know, or if it
0: is, it's just Ben Joyce's sex life again. Uh, yeah, yeah.
5: <laughs> um, But you know, any anything happens, like here around the world, like you know. There's been a bombing, there's been a shooting, there's been a car hijacking. Like my and like to I'm
0: listen out for whether it's a Muslim yeah, name or not like when I they make I honestly sit there,
5: and, you know, like in the, in the space between them reporting it and them identifying the suspect, just sit there and hoping it's not going to be somebody with a vaguely ethnic name. So mm. it's not going to be one of those days where I have to sit there and listen to people talk about like, oh, all those Muslims, and it's like, and it doesn't matter how many times you say it, like, this person does not represent it, you know, or yeah. however many millions of us there are, but, mm. so yeah, there is, I think there's huge pressures mm. to, to act right, and to be very careful about what you say and how you act, and and I think you, like, um, at the Invasion Day rally um, with Taneen, um that whole thing where it's like, um, you know... She was angry justifiably and said and said some things and godness, like yeah, like I agree with her statements and they like and it's like context or no context where it's like but the minute you kind of cross a boundary of polite behaviour, um, you will you'll cop it. Like and Mm. it's and it's like, oh suddenly all Aboriginal people want Australia to burn to the ground. Literally. They're Mm. trying to murder us all and blah and it's like I mean Mm. I mean, you know. And, and well, the coming to Yasmin Abdul Majeed, yeah. who
0: was basically had performed the model migrant role mm. to perfection, excelling at school, setting up an NGO at sixteen, mm. and, and yeah, and, and with a smile on, like pretty mm. well twenty-four-seven, and for transgressing in
1: yeah, let's what remember. you would have thought,
0: that, and, and was, and it's really. I think quite explicitly the way that um that she was treated is meant as a warning to us all, so my hate mail features defaced photographs of her, you know so as, and what is that telling me like that yeah that 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 hating on one very prominent Muslim woman is to let us know that you all need to know your place mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well,
3: it sort of comes to this whole thing of like the battle of morality over women's bodies or you know uh, I- over bodies in, in, in general uh, in order to sort of maintain power structures so uh, I suppose what I'm, what I'm thinking about when so just back uh, uh, off the back of what happened in Taneen in, to Taneen in the media coverage um, and what happened to Yasmin um, and also just the broader thing of like so often when we talk about um, Muslim women uh, in 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 general, um, we talk about you know oppression and all these sort of things that that that, that come with that. Um, they're oppressed, uh, and uh, Western women are, are liberated, um, uh, have found sexual liberation, whereas um, uh, Muslim women haven't. But um, that in historically,
0: itself, it was Muslim yeah, women was who about, were meant to yeah. be licentious and so European
1: before, before, Yeah, okay. so
3: before uh, the sort of um, discovery of, fem- of 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 second wave feminism, that was a, the uh, Western women were seen as sort of like pure pure, pure and uh, Oriental women were seen as sort of like harem sort of um, sex goddesses. Uh, I suppose um, uh, I w- just wanted to talk about se- se- sex a bit here. Um, and sort of uh, representations of sex. Um, and um, I suppose, um, Jane, um, I don't know if you wanted to talk to this at all, um, but sort of... Uh, and the implications when it comes to, like, sex work and that sort of stuff.
6: Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, there's a lot to unpack there, but I, I think the the fact that... It, sex workers are still so incredibly stigmatised because our work is sex work and the operative word is sex there. Um, But people focus on the sex and not the work. Um, And that is the key problem. Um, It's... The stigma is still so profound. Uh, And it's so perpetuated in media, it's so perpetuated in art and film, um, and it's a sorry. Um it's it's just and it's a it's not only makes it more difficult for us to speak about the reality of our lives, but it it makes it enables discrimination against sex workers. Because it's much more it's easier to discriminate against people um, they're heavily stigmatized. Um, you care less about them, you care less about their rights. So it's a massive problem. Um, but I think also society still has a lot of basic issues with sex and sexuality. Um, I was asked it um, a few weeks ago and I think there are massive problems and massive problems with women's sexuality.
3: mhm. Um, and what, when, what do you mean by that? Like, what sort of uh, problems do you see as, like...
6: Well, I still, I still think the, the idea... Um, there's a lot of hang-ups around um, women's sexuality, women's bodily autonomy, um, and the idea that um, it's okay for women to express themselves sexually. Um, I still think that society has a problem with that, and mm. that's part of the issue that's tied up with sex work.
3: Mm. Um, and, and used to sort of maintain the sort of uh, neoliberal uh, power structures um,
6: Oh, absolutely as well. yeah. I mean, uh, I, I think the, um, the idea particularly with, um, with radical feminists that are anti-sex work um, the idea that it's appropriate for any mm. feminist to tell another woman what she can and can't do with her body mm. um, it just seems extremely contradictory to me
3: mm. Um, so the theme throughout um, uh, these panel discussions today um, has been around uh, about fitting in within uh, uh, ne- neoliberal, f- feminism fitting in within neoliberal uh, Western standards um, and um, sort of tr- trying to, and how feminism uh, has the opportunity and feminisms um, in varying forms uh, have the opportunity to dismantle uh, power structures um, which are maintained uh, usually by, um, or to the benefit of of uh, white men. Um, so I suppose this is a really random question, um, but just to conclude, um, how how do we address this? How do we get rid of all the white men? Sorry. <laughs> Can we start with um, Iris and then work our way through? How do we get rid of?
4: How them? do I answer this? So, sorry, that was a bit of a, <laughs> a, a contentious uh, question. Um, well, what would you I like? like mm-hmm. What would you like to see um, in mm. the coming future? Well,
2: I, I guess I, I think like representation has its limitations. In like, there should be more representation of voices that aren't heard, and people shouldn't be spoken over. But we also like see a of trans visibility that can be a trap in terms of we see in like the US that trans women of colour are murdered and sex workers who are trans are murdered at like really high rates and that's come with high visibility so visibility isn't necessarily Mm -hmm. a good thing and -hmm. we need to think more about like um social movements for things that people need like housing wealth welfare just be able to live their lives and that's all it's seen cut in neoliberals like capitalism i guess Mm -hmm.
3: um and so we've got uh about uh i think that's all we have time for uh today um but well, we've been joined today on our special uh, Take Back IWD uh, International Women's Day um, uh, Thursday breakfast uh, by Shakira Hussein, um, uh, uh, Jane Green, who's joined us on the phone. Thank you, um, Adele Modelo, uh, Iris Lee, and Hela Ibrahim and Shakira. I did say. Oh, Shakira. <laughs> I was like, don't forget Shakira, uh-huh. um, and also. Um, uh, so uh, stay tuned in. The rest of the day will feature um, a variety. Um, oh, Up next is Lost in Science, um, but the rest of the day will feature a variety of gender diverse um, uh, issues. Um, on this. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR
6: in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.